not just that I felt like I was failing by not being all things to all people, but that I thought that maybe there was something wrong with me, that I had thought that this was supposed to feel easier and more doable. Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey, 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 I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, I'm joined by Lauren Smith-Brody, author of the best-selling book, The Fifth Trimester, and founder of The Fifth Trimester Consulting, which advances parents' equity in the workplace. We know that one of the biggest challenges as a working mom is that back-to-work season after maternity leave, so we want to give you the tools you need to make this fifth trimester a little easier. As a reminder, these episodes are recorded live on YouTube, so if you want to have your questions answered on the show, be sure to head to youtube.com forward slash smartmoneymamas and click that subscribe button. Are you ready? Let's get started. Lauren, it is so good to see you today. You too, Chelsea. You're such a pro. I loved your intro. It was awesome. (laughs) Thank you. We are so glad to have you here. I absolutely loved your book. So first, just tell everybody a little bit about you. Sure. Um, The author and the founder of The Fifth Trimester, which is a term I actually came up with when I was in my my own, I was working at Glamour Magazine. I had both of my boys there. I spent 16 years um, working in publishing before leaving to start this business mm-hmm. and had a really hard time, as you might have guessed, um, coming back to work after baby, but realizing or back to paid work, I should say, but then realized as I was going through it, the kind of the only way through was to be really visible and really transparent about my needs. And I did it with quite a number of kinds of privileges working in my favor, um, Mm -hmm. including executive privilege. I was at a management level by the time I had my boys. And I found that kind of counterintuitively, it actually made me a better manager to be that raw and that candid about the challenges. And it helped us solve problems, I think, also for some of my colleagues who were approaching parenthood after me and really was the germ of the idea for my book in which I interviewed and surveyed almost 800 other uh, new working moms to see what we had in common, what we had working against us, and the things that we could do to work together to try to solve some of these problems on both an individual and systematic level. Absolutely. And you made a, a correction there in language from saying going back to work to going back to paid work, which yes. is such an important distinction. Can you explain why we really need a mindset shift about that going back to work thought process? Because it all counts. And because I also am constantly correcting and learning and understanding mm-hmm. better my own implicit biases um, to figure out how I can best advocate for people who may not have the exact array of privileges that I, that I have, it all counts. It's all work. You know, whether the work you're doing is being put into a widget factory that makes widgets or into developing our children who, you know, if you even just want to look at it, like in the most coldest way, like obviously we're nurturing our kids, but we're also raising the next generation who will support our economy. So you kind of can't argue with the financial value of that. Absolutely. And so you mentioned in your book, I love that right at the beginning, you're like, you have a lot of privileges, right? You had a supportive spouse, you had a good job. So can you just talk to us about what was that first maternity leave like? And how did you feel as you approached coming back to work? I had so many expectations that were just unrealistic. And I, at the time, internalized that as my fault. Not just that I felt like I was failing by not being all things to all people, but that 
I thought that maybe there was something wrong with me that I had thought that this was supposed to feel easier and more doable. And what I've learned through all these years of research is that, you know, we have to strip away this idea of feeling guilty about our own supposed failures and really ask for the external supports that we need, recognize the support that's not there. On my own maternity leave, I had for my first son, undiagnosed postpartum anxiety. I loved this child to pieces, but I had intrusive thoughts, um, some of which were violent and scary. My husband sort of ironically was um, starting his residency in psychiatry and was gone a lot. He was able to be home for just uh, the first three days of being home with our son, Will, and then had to go right back to his residency work. He was working a lot of overnight shifts. I had my mom um, was able to come to town. She wasn't working anymore at that point and help help me, you know, somewhat. But most of what I needed help with truly was inside my own head and just adjusting to being a mom who was pretty far in her career, had moved up pretty rapidly, and I was good at my job. And yet, as a new mom, again, it was like being day one of an internship. You know, I didn't love that feeling of not being great at something. And then the same thing sort of was true again, three months later, when I went back to work and was comfortable in some of the old, you know, things that I knew how to do in my job, but it was still my first day of being a working mom. That was all new. Yeah. There's so many just major transformations. You're learning by fire, right? That Mm -hmm. first year of having a kid and really beyond that, right? Everything is new. But so as you approach coming back to work, I think I know I, when I came back to work, that last two to three weeks of maternity leave was so much fear of just Mm. what's going to happen. How am I going to do this? I'm used to being with him all the time. And so what are some things that you think moms need to know as they start that transition back to paid work? Well, to the degree that you're able to, it can be really helpful to kind of take a toe dip into having your baby in someone else's care, just to get used to that feeling while also getting used to the logistics of it and to take a little bit of time to do some good things for yourself. And that way, when you are with the baby, you can feel like you're realizing whatever, whatever sort of sunny dreams you had about maternity leave that ended up being like very like poop stained, like (laughs) those last few days, if you are able to have the FMLA allotted 12 weeks, which was what I had, it was really for me by about week 11 that I started feeling kind of like okay again. And so that last week was really precious to me. And I tried to fill it up with as many. I remember taking my son, Will, to the park and laying him on a blanket that someone had given us that had his name printed all over it and taking a picture. And it was like the first smiling picture I took of him. And then it was like, I don't know, there's a thunderstorm or like something happened where we had to run home. And it was like, well, at least we had those five minutes, you know, (laughs) that was what I was dreaming my whole, you know, maternity leave were going to be. But do as many things as you can to set up, obviously, you know, systems for yourself. And some of this we're actually better at, I think, now having lived through a pandemic that required us to have lower expectations in some ways of ourselves and set up a lot of a lot of systems. So set up whatever systems you can, whether that is planning for meals or, you know, knowing that you're going to like only get dressed from a certain corner of your closet because that's where everything fits and everything matches. I'm not even joking. Like that sounds superficial, but it makes a big difference. And then also as you ease into caregiving, if you have someone caring for your child in your home, or if you're going to a care center, or if you're dropping at a relative's house, neighbor's house, all of those things. So try it out for kind of incremental amounts of time, but then also establish with whomever's taking care of your child, how you would like to be communicated with throughout the day. 
day. And of course, you know, if you're managing someone as, you know, an employee who's caring for your baby, you want to have the system set up of, you know, we're going to talk, you know, every week about the schedule. We're going to talk every month about milestones. We're going to talk every quarter about job. Are you doing okay? What do you need? Schedule looking ahead, those sorts of things. But I mean, also the communication of like, if baby, because most of the parents who I work with are going back when when their babies are two months old, maybe four months old. And, uh, those are full of milestones. I mean, baby's rolling over one direction one day, one direction the next day, and then a tooth is breaking through. And then they're, you know, like transitioning to solid foods. There's all these milestones that are going to be happening, many of which are probably going to happen for the like so-called first time while you are physically away from baby. So establish communication about the job and what constitutes an interruption, an emergency that's worth interrupting, how much you want to know, but also about how you want those emotional moments communicated. Do you want to know every time there's a milestone or do you want to wait until you're home and you see it for the first time and that's your first time because baby doesn't really care. And I think that that can be really helpful to just sort of have a plan around that. And this is actually a big question we got submitted ahead of time, which was how do you decide who's going to watch your baby as you go back to work, right? How do we figure out whether we should have someone in the house or daycare (laughs) or finding the best affordable care? What are we looking to? I think a lot of us over these past 15 or 16 months have explored more options than we ever knew possible because, you know, absent sort of traditional structural caregiving that may have been set up for us in pre-pandemic, we're now really, a lot of people are cobbling together different plans. You know, if you have a partner, perhaps, you know, you're working a four-day week, your partner's working a four-day week, a relative, if you have the luxury of someone living close to you who's able to, is doing one day, and then babies in daycare for socialization two days. I'm seeing a lot of piecing together of those kinds of plans, which are wonderful in many ways, and in other ways are more labor. It's Mm. more complicated to manage all those different scenarios than it is to just drop off at a daycare. But we know that the daycare industry's recovery is very, very slow and is going to lag behind that of pretty much every other industry, which of course is full of parents who are depending on daycare, which gets really complicated. I will share with you the biggest takeaway from researching my book is that the first chapter in the book is about childcare because I knew that just sort of, you know, with the sort of, I'm, I'm yeah. a storyteller, right? So the arc of storytelling about that's one of the primary decisions people are going to be making. And yet it was the last chapter I wrote because I could not bring myself to do that research. I knew what we had struggled through and decided for our family that like kind of barely worked, but worked. And as I was talking to people, I was interviewing in other sections of the book, I was learning that there were a lot of really cultural norms around caregiving that were unfamiliar to me. There were a lot of regional norms, you know, what the sort of wealthy people did in in one part of the country was very different than what the wealthy, well-off people did in another part of the country. And so I was like, I'm going to get this wrong. I am really worried that I'm going to say like, here's how you make these decisions. And here's what you, here's the best thing. And like, who's to say what's the best thing. And there's a lot of studies you can look at about sort of language development in children and what they call externalizing behavior versus internalizing behavior, which is like, you know, extra, it's basically like, is your kid acting out, right? Yeah. When they're when they're in school, and you know how they do academically, eventually related to those first few years of childcare, and there's all kinds of studies like that. And as I was looking at them, they all coalesced around one giant study that was a 15 year long look by a big government agency that looked at thousands of children over 15 years. It was hundreds of studies compiled together to try to like parse through these questions. Mm-hmm. And I was so relieved because when I got to the very bottom of the like the outline document for it, the summary document, the basic takeaway, like the last line on the last page was, but the biggest predictor of your child's success in whatever childcare situation you choose is the parent's 
emotional comfort with that choice. And I was like, oh, Eureka, I can write the chapter now. Because then it became much more about, yes, of course, there are logistical questions and financial questions, you know, first Mm -hmm. and foremost, but how you feel about those logistics. It may be more convenient to take baby to this location, but how do you feel about going there? Does that mean that like, if you're in a partnered relationship, that's closer to one person's work than the other. And so that person is going to be doing all of the drop-offs and pickups. Like, how do you feel about that? And yeah. so that really guided the advice I was able to offer through lots of other families who had made these decisions. I love how much of child raising research comes back to, are the parents confident with their choice? Are yeah. the parents emotionally stable? Are they happy? Like so much of it is just it's okay to make the decision that just feels best to you. Your kid is going to be fine. It's very comforting most of the time. And so I want to step back a second because I want to talk about maternity leave policies because we talked about FMLA, which excludes a lot of people in the US still. Mm -hmm. And so we have another Lauren who just commented and said, I loved how Lauren explained how you start to feel better physically than emotionally, then your baby starts responding to you. And as all that is finally happening for you, you have to go back to work. And that's it if you got that amount of leave to begin with. And she said, it was kind of eye opening to me how much I struggled with that myself. First of all, you have a whole consulting agency about equality for parents. And what are your thoughts about maternity leave and what we should be pushing for as a society to make this better? Well, it's interesting. I mean, so I have ways I've evolved, you know, bias Mm -hmm. I've had in the beginning. This work was for moms. It was for new moms. And I have pretty quickly, especially over the last year, but really you know, before that as well, opened up my talks and and the research that I do for dads, for partners, now to include elder care, even spousal care, partner care, self-care, like this all counts. And when you look at who takes FMLA, and I'll tell you what I didn't know when I wrote this book. I did not know this when I wrote this book. 25% of FMLA applications in in use um, is for people who are caring for a child. 25% is for people who are doing some other kind of family care. So perhaps a spouse, um, perhaps elder care. And 50% of people who apply for FMLA are using it to care for their own mental health and physical health needs. And the new, so the proposed Biden family plan actually has one thing that has not been talked a lot about in the media, which I'm sort of curious about, but I was on a, um, I was invited to a White House briefing um, to sort of be informed about all of the things that were being proposed in this rescue of the childcare industry and of the proposed paid family leave. And this is, this gets to your question. It's sort of structured like FMLA except paid, but it is meant to include chosen family. So it's family leave, but it's how you define family. So if you have a best friend who is like a sister to you and you need to take care of that person, it just gives the user the benefit of the doubt that if you are willing to actually step away from the work that you're doing to care for this person, that person must be like family to you. And I think that's so an important evolution. We've also seen HR departments move away from like primary caregiver and secondary caregiver leave, which I still see a lot. It was something that was that a lot of the tech companies did three years yeah. ago or so. And I think pretty quickly it became clear that it only exacerbated a lot of the sexism, you know, that happens with dads, and this is very heteronormative, but like dads feeling like they can't take paternity leave to the degree that that's given to them and moms yeah. feeling like they must take maternity leave. So I think it should be caregiver leave. I think it should be 
not just for new parents. It should be for anyone who feels they need it and give people the benefit of the doubt that if they're willing to rock their life enough to step away from their job to care for someone, maybe it's a, maybe it's foster child. Maybe it's a new marriage and you're taking, you you have a stepchild who you need bonding time with. Like, I think that should all actually count. And all the research shows that when you invest in employees' ability to have that kind of satisfaction and deep ties in their family, that they bring it right back to work in terms of being great leaders, staying, longevity, you're not paying for attrition of people leaving, they're healthier. There's just a great economic case to be made for it. And this speaks to, too, for FMLA is 12 weeks, right? And so it speaks to, too, that struggle as you start to go back to work where so many women are feeling like, oh my God, I finally feel okay. And I got to upheave my life again. What do you think is the like ideal amount of leave? Like is 12 weeks enough? This is no, this is the origin story for the fifth trimester, which I didn't even really realize when I was in it. And I didn't totally realize when I was writing it, but so this You're nurse, not in a place to make these kind of like big realizations in the, no, in the midst of the mess. Well, it's funny because I mean, I wrote the books. I wrote the book when my, my boys were seven and four. So you think yeah. I have perspective. My husband read the draft and was like, I can't believe all the details you remember. I'm like, oh, yes, they, I remember them. But what I didn't know, I will share with you, is that this notion of 12 weeks is completely arbitrary. It comes from nothing. All of the research internationally and domestically and for decades has pointed to six months paid, by the way, paid. That's like the biggest Mm -hmm. asterisk in the world, right? The minimum necessary to be protective of mom's mental health, mom's physical health, baby's physical health. If baby has been in a parent's care for six months, they are more likely to have been vaccinated on time because they have a parent who could take that child to the doctor. At a time, we're talking about vaccines quite a lot, right? It's also predictive that six months paid leave of mom's ability to to maintain her income, sustain her career. And when you get to nine months, you start seeing that fall off a bit, in part because of bias and in part just because the reality is that it's harder to get back in the longer you've been away. But that's the sweet spot. So all of the research coalesces around that like minimum six months to nine months paid leave. And what's fascinating is when you look at the history of FMLA, which was one of the first things that Bill Clinton signed into law in 1993, it had actually been proposed again and again and again and again, this family leave or at that point, you know, like parental leave for nine years. And when it was first proposed, whatever 1993 minus nine is, 1984, right? I was six years old. It was meant to be 23 paid weeks because even back then, that's what the research showed was productive and it got protective and it got hacked away and hacked away and it was a compromise. And it was always meant to be a Band-Aid, right, that we would improve upon and heal and align with other developed countries. And it just never happened. And so this is our opportunity. And I don't want to say anything bad about the opportunity that's on the table now that hopefully will get passed with a lot of support by the public and the private sector. But it's still based on 12 weeks. And we have totally normalized that in our culture where we say, like, did you get your whole 12 weeks? Like, you think or I thought that you should feel back to okay at that point. And so when you don't, you think there's something wrong with you. And then you have this sort of like, you know, manufactured sense of mom guilt that, of course, you think is your fault. But is really it's also structural. And now I'll be quiet. Let you ask the next question. But like, I feel very passionately about this. And I'm 
very open about saying what I didn't even know when I wrote this book that I've learned since and I'm so happy to be able to share. And it's a huge thing. That paid asterisk, like you said, is the biggest asterisk in the world. And like what we talk here at Smart Money Moms all the time is about the intersection of personal development and money and the fact that like mm-hmm. we can't just have this unpaid leave. Most families can't handle that. And the physical mental stress that comes with lack of financial stability yes. is not good for the mom. It's not good for the kid. And it's going to push people back to work. Like when you actually said, what did we learn this year about scarcity mode? It's not healthy. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. And when you said earlier, 25%, I thought you were going down the stat of 25% of moms still going back to work two oh, weeks after is. their kid is born, right? Yeah. Like yeah. that is just not, it's not sustainable. So that six months number is so far from where we are as a culture, but hopefully we can keep pushing for there. And our last policy question, we have someone commented, Kate, and said, do you know if there's any plan to work on expanding leave for parents Mm -hmm. of kids in the NICU? Twin mom, and it's a big deal in the multiples community, and several families I know took their leave during NICU time and had to go back immediately after bringing the babies home. I know I've worked with a number of families who've had that situation, and many of them have worked through some of the NICU time and then tried to take their leave after there are ways legally, you know, state by state to try to cobble together, you know, disability leave plus family leave plus potentially job protected leave, depending on what's available in your state. You know, so many of these issues are left to be handled by like, do you have a good boss? Do you have a bad boss? Do you have a boss who's ever been through anything similar to this? Do they have a good boss? Because even if they're a good person with good intentions, if they feel like their job is at stake by going out on a limb for you, like what that does anytime we leave things up to individual decisions like that is it just underserves the underserved, right? The people who feel like they can't ask, they can't speak up, they get less and less and less. Um, But to specifically answer that question, I don't know of anything on a federal level. That doesn't mean it's not happening. State by state, there might be people who are working toward um, that goal of specifically leave for parents of premature um, or babies in the NICU. I will put in a plug for um, for Vote Mama, um, which is this amazing organization that helps women run, specifically women, but I think would consider helping dads as well, parents of young kids up and down the Democratic ticket specifically uh, run for office at kind of all levels of government um, with the goal of helping them change law in their states to allow for campaign donations to be used for child care because otherwise these that's why we don't really have a lot of younger parents in office yeah. because they have these kids they have to take care of and they can't just like take off their job, not get paid for it for a year or two to campaign and not have care. Whatever, like I would go look at who their candidates are and they are the kinds of people who you can inform about this need and they will do everything they can to to advocate for it. I love that. Vote mama. Okay, we'll check that out. And so when we're going back to work sooner than is ideal, a lot of moms have that thought crop up of I need to quit. How do we handle that, right? Especially in the early days of going back so that we don't leave a job that we probably built a career and enjoy just because we're in a moment of stress. Yeah, this was this was interesting because when I did the um, the surveying and the deeper interviewing of all these women, there was a, a huge diversity of experiences and a huge diversity of self-proclaimed ambition. And, you know, there were people who had low paying jobs who were very ambitious or people who had high paying jobs who said that they were less ambitious. But the universal was guilt that came up, that word meaning all kinds of different things came up and attributed to all kinds of different things came up in like every interview. So, so the other thing that came up was this feeling of like, whether it was a blip of a bad afternoon, or it was like three months of torture of like, this isn't sustainable. I can't do it if I have to quit. So I decided to look at the research about specifically how not to quit, because assuming that quitting is not 
an option for many people. You know, most, most people work because they have to, and that doesn't mean they don't also want to or enjoy it and get a lot out of it, but like they need it to be able exactly, to. Yeah. So if you have to, and if you can't quit, and I would encourage you not to quit until you have gone through this exercise, there are a bunch of things that can help, but two specific studies I found one, this is going to sound so basic, but, but when you looked at the language of it, it makes a lot of sense. Make a list of all of the things that you get out of your work. And that will, is obviously a paycheck that is, uh, you know, well, not this past year, but most of the time, a place to go, you know, we're like yeah. have a little community. It's making good on the investment that you have in your education. It's that when you meet someone for the first time and they ask what you do, you get to have this be a defining characteristic of how you describe yourself. Like all that stuff counts. All that stuff goes on the list. That's mm-hmm. one list. The other study said that you need to make a list of what work gets out of you. And that is obviously your hard work, the widgets that you're making, your collegiality, your ability, the investment that they've had in teaching you everything that you've learned so far, right? All of those things. And when you look at those two lists together, I forget which was which because it's been a while since I looked at the studies. One, one sort of was predictive of if you had those feelings of either feeling valued or understanding your value, that women in particular were much less likely to quit in a time of transition, which obviously this is one of the biggest ones. And then the other study said that if you make that list, um, whichever one it was, that you become, I love this language, more comfortable with your compromises. And I really love that because I love the acknowledgement that like, it's always going to feel like a compromise, but a compromise isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's Mm -hmm. the math you've done in your head to make something feel fair and worth it. So I always recommend making those two lists. And then the other thing practically that I offer to the, I coach a handful, a very small handful of women, those I coach, particularly now, those who have become mothers or added to their family over the pandemic is that they really try to to fill in the sentence of Lauren who, like I want to be known as Lauren who, and that sounds so like, you know, like out of a workbook, but we are so used to, particularly before we have children, if we are high achieving people being Lauren, who is so dependable, Lauren, who stays so late, Lauren, who is always the first person I see the last to go, always there, always says yes, always this, always that. Many of those things are incompatible with also being the kind of mom that I, I want to be for my children still, yeah. but what back then when they were tiny and is now when they're big. And so I had to really adjust my measures of success and how I think of a successful day and how I think of what my sort of personal brand is so cheesy, but like, you know, like the way I want people to think of me Mm -hmm. to not necessarily be about a measure of time or money, like how else Mm -hmm. have people think of me in a way that is like inherently valuable. And the sort of awesome PS to that is that when you think of the people you know in management, people who've really succeeded, who've made it to the very top of whatever field you admire you want to be in, if that's your goal even, like they're not always really the people who work the most hours. They're not the people who say yes to every single thing. They have more authority than that and they have more perspective than that and they have the time to like take a long shower and have a big thought and then email that thought, you know, like they took the time for the shower. <laughs> yeah. They were able to have the thought. You know what I mean? I do. And this is actually, there's like two ways we could go here, but I want to tie back first. I want to talk about the shower, but tie back here to <laughs> mom, guilt. Guilt. <laughs> <laughs> to mom guilt, right? Because we, like you said, this comes up in almost every interview. And so what are some ways to rethink that mom guilt? Because that thought is going to crop up at some point in the season. How do we handle it? 
Okay. Some of this, this is, this is going to sound a little gimmicky, but you know, my son, my older son was learning fractions when I was trying to kind of do my, my big, like mom guilt thinking. One thing that I did when I was writing my book is I invested in a transcriber. This was before there was like AI transcribing and I hired a, um, please talk about the shower. (laughs) I'll talk. I do all my best thinking in the shower. There's a reason for that. So I hired this awesome single mom, single working mom to transcribe all of the interviews I did. I did like 115 hour long interviews, a big project. But what that'll let, let me do is it let me look at the language on the page. And I could see like, if you made a word bubble, like the word that came up the most besides mom, love, hard was guilt. But when you looked at the specific transcripts of what people were saying, it meant entirely different things to different people. It was almost like this very kind of general term for like, I feel unsupported. There were people who felt guilty because they loved going to work and loved being able to like sit in air conditioning on a hot day and have an adult conversation and be able to pee whenever they needed to. There were people who felt guilty leaving their babies in the arms of a caregiver who they felt wasn't going to care for them quite as well as they could themselves. There were just all kinds of different flavors of guilt. It knew no bounds of financial security or education or ambition level or kinds of jobs. Everybody seemed to feel it, but it meant all kinds of different things. And so I realized back to teaching my son fractions, there was this common denominator. And like, what do you do with a common denominator? you eliminate it and you solve for the numerator. Mm-hmm. So I'm being a little wonky, but it, it, it really helped me think about it that way to think, okay, what if we dig into what the actual issue is that the guilt is impacting and figure out what exact support do you need? Do you need to be able to stay home a half an hour later so you can have one more nursing as opposed to a pumping? Because ultimately that's going to let you feel like you're going to be able to meet the, and like feed your baby, how everyone feed your baby. It's all good by me, but like, you're going to be able to meet, you know, what your pediatrician told you is the American association of pediatrics recommendations that you nurse your baby for X amount of time. And that's going to keep you from feeling guilty for working Granted, not everybody has the flexibility to be able to ask or the agency to be able to ask for that. But if that half hour keeps you in your job five years from now, totally worth it, right? Absolutely. I love that figuring out what do you need help with, where do you need support on. But to go back to the shower, how do we feel human again? Because so many of us are already exhausted during maternity leave. And then we add all these other responsibility. How do we feel a little bit more like ourselves? Sleep. I mean, that's the biggest, most obvious answer. And it's just the truth. There is a sleep expert I interviewed who was explaining to me that kind of the bare minimum that that fractured sleep is actually okay for a set amount of time, but really only if one of those fragments of sleep is at least four hours because, or like three hours and 45 minutes to four hours and 15 minutes, because that's two REM cycles. And that was mind blowing to me. Oh my God, that's why the first night I slept four hours in a row, I woke up feeling like a new person and then was like, this is my life now that like four hours in a row made me feel good. Like, what is wrong, right? Um, so I think sleep is, is the biggest piece of it. Yes. I want you to be able to take a shower for those people who do have partners. I believe really, really strongly in conversations about what happened overnight, not in an accusatory way, but because the research shows, and it's all very heteronormative research. I have not seen anything on same-sex partnerships or on single parents and sleep yet, but I need to go look actually, because it's been a while since I looked. But this very heteronormative research, one of them is out of Israel and one's out of Germany, I believe, found that dads who wake up in the night 
with their children have stronger marriages in spite of being more sleep deprived themselves, simply because they know that their partner is less resentful of them. That offsets the sleep deprivation and it's good for them. It's obviously good for mom and baby too. And then there was another study that showed that that was for toddlers, but for newborns, that dads are simply less aware of what has happened in the night than moms are. Go figure. We know this, right? But it's, you know, if mom is sitting there seething because like somebody next to her is just snoring and not waking up, that's not really dad's fault, but you do need to both talk about it in the morning so you can set a plan. And the the plan that this is all obviously gets really complicated. If you're, I did breastfeed, breastfed through the night, um, pumping in the night didn't really work for me. So, you know, this is going to vary family by family, but the best thing that you can do is to actually trade off two nights at a time so that you both get fully restorative sleep before the next person's on. The next best thing is to protect those four hours for each of you. So what that looked like practically in my life was my going to bed at 10 and then not waking up again till two and having left a bottle for my husband to do a dream feed, which was something we, we used in our family. That was sort of how we made do, but it was interesting years later to see that the research really supported that. And we didn't have enough sleep equity, you know, back then. And I really encourage all couples who can have these conversations to have them and really step up to help each other because it makes the biggest difference. Absolutely. And so let's pull back for a second and talk specifically about being in the workplace. And so when we're reentering work, how do we manage our teams and managers Mm -hmm. to make sure everybody knows what's going on and we're protecting our career? I'm a firm believer in radical visibility. Parents need to display the things that are hard in order for all of us to solve for them. And if you think some of these things are hard to solve for, I would encourage you to talk for people who have other things they need solving for, like mental health struggles, addiction, elder care needs, a grandparent who is, you know, in their last months of life. Those are a lot less cute than a baby. And so for many people, it's the first time they're asking for these kinds of changes in flexibility because it happens to come fertility years happen to coincide Mm -hmm. with a lot of like early and mid career development years. We use whatever degree of comfort you have and go like one step beyond and know that you're doing it for the greater good, not just for you, for whatever flexibility Mm -hmm. you're asking for. Okay. And what if you have a boss who Mm -hmm. hasn't had kids, right? They don't understand and maybe they don't care to hear your visibility? How do you manage up in that situation? So anecdotally, actually, people without children are not necessarily worse bosses to have. 10, this is really purely anecdotal, just from from my experience working with with people who've had a lot of these conversations, there is sort of an open-mindedness of like, wow, I don't know what that is. Tell me what that's like, as opposed to, up. I made it to, you know, high management and I got through it and I have a survivor's bias which is not to say anything negative about the absolutely amazing parents and leadership who are helping lead some of these changes, but they are a subset. You do want to think broadly. You want to go into any sort of conversation around flexibility with imagining what the hesitation is going to be that the other person has, whether it's that they have to answer to someone above them or that they are worried it's going to be unfair to your teammates and colleagues. And like it might be, but what's ultimately fair is for everyone to have access to all of that flexibility, not just the new moms, because you don't want to further stigmatize motherhood in that way. Right. So 
as you're asking for things, remember, you're really asking for them for everyone. You're asking for them for the greater good of the organization. You should do a little internal research to see what precedent has been set and what actual policies exist in writing, which there's research that shows a lot of people don't know them. And then do a little external research to see what do your biggest competitors or people in your other businesses about of about your size in your region offer? Even, you know, what do your friends who are in other fields, what's sort of their, I call it bubble of norm, like what do they think is normal? Because we do a lot of normalizing the things that we see around us without really thinking bigger picture about does that make sense? And there's probably a business case that you can make for the efficacy of flexibility for, you know, perhaps even you can use some examples of things you were able to do and achieve during the pandemic if you were able to not leave your job, not be pushed out of your job, ways you moved forward even in spite of the stasis and use some of those. But then really also go into those conversations knowing your job description, which sounds really simple, but you've probably already exceeded, like on day two of whatever job you're doing, you've probably already started doing more than what was in the job description. But that job description is what you're being paid for. And I do believe that we all like want to do a little better than we're just supposed to on paper, but know what's in there and whatever plan you're proposing and coming with, don't come with an ask, come with a plan, come with even a plan B and a plan C that would be acceptable to you. Those plans should satisfy your job description and you should kind of have it on the tip of your tongue to be able to describe to the person you're negotiating with. So here's what really needs to get accomplished. And here's how I'm going to be able to do it in the structure that I'm proposing. And if you're still meeting hesitation, then you say, let me try it. What amount of time would make you comfortable for my trying this? A week? a month, I will be thoroughly open and communicating with you. I will guinea pig this for you. And if it's a failure, then we can pick it apart and figure out what would make it work a different way. And if it's a success, then it can be a model for how our organization can move forward in time when supporting employees, mental health, balance, ability to maintain their careers is getting more attention than ever. Absolutely. And this reminds me of all the talk with parents with kids on their lap during Zoom calls last year because there wasn't another option. And we got to see this radical transparency you're talking about and how it impacted families. We have a question from Callie who says, how can we work from home while also watching the baby or kids plus baby? Obviously, 2020 was a huge impact on this. But we also saw we see entrepreneurs really struggle with this of how do I handle going back when it's just me? Oh gosh, so much of it is about reframing and perspective and understanding the choices that you're making. I do not advocate for working from home with no childcare. I just don't. You know, if you have a tiny newborn who naps really reliably and, you know, you're able to make it work, more power to you, certainly in a pinch. I mean, I think we've seen that, like, if you need to take a day or two to go take care of yourself, but then you need a day or two more and there's kind of no childcare, like, you can probably make do. But I do think our managers and our HR directors, they do need you to do your job. And so we have to, in order to sort of avoid creating this like very bifurcated work experience of like those who need flexibility are seen as less reliable because they're at home. Like the way to avoid that is to actually be quite productive. So if you have to work with your kid around you, which I I did, I still am doing, although mine are old enough to like make their own grilled cheeses. So it's kind of, it's different now, but when they were doing, you know, my younger son did remote school for 15 months um, and was constantly interrupting me and asking me questions and became a lot more independent. You want to be really dependable. You want to be really predictable. And the way to do that is to kind of know when your time is that you're going to have, I call it, butt in chair time, like at keyboard time, whatever it is, 
this is assuming you have a job with a keyboard that may not be your job, but whatever it is that you produce and that you send out into the world, whether that's communication or a document or something that you've read and digested and explained to people, that is as predictable as you can be about when you're going to be able to do that and communicate it to people. Even if it means like if you get it done early, like actually waiting a couple hours until your regular delivery time of 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. so that people know they can rely on you. Because people can adjust usually around you to your flexible schedule, but they don't want to feel like they're chasing you or bothering you. But if they know that you are reliably, dependably available at a couple of times per day and that you're reading things all the time, taking it in, but that's when they're going to get a response from you, that can work. I've seen that work. And I think too, there's a a cultural thing here where before the last year, when we had to all face the realities of working home with kids, there was this growing voice of work from home, start a business from home. Like you'll get the best of both worlds. You can raise your kids and work. And then it was like 2020 hit and we all had to face the, oh no, this is, you need help. Like you cannot both work and watch your kids 24 seven. There is a fantasy of being able to go start your own business and work for yourself. And I would be hypocritical if I didn't tell you that like, I bought into it to the degree that I am now doing it, but it took me five years to be able to charge what I charge for speaking that actually is almost half of our household income. It took me that long. I did it very openly telling people like I couldn't have done this if I needed this paycheck to be as big as it was in my, you know, my corporate life before, but there's a fantasy around it. And I think it's really important that we peel a little bit of that away and talk about, you know, how we had savings and we were able to do this because so many people leave the traditional workforce to go work for themselves because they want to do something they're passionate about, but also because they need the flexibility and better in many ways to just stay in, be a really talented, invested voice for change, show them how to keep you because they probably do want to keep you. They just don't know how. Tell them what you need and then show them that in receiving it, you can stay. That's the better. And that's my business. Like I do work for myself. I'm in my my home office right now, but I go into businesses and I, I show them how to support parents as employees to help offset the motherhood penalty the gender pay gap and to retain women and parents. Hmm. I'll tell you. So I quit my hedge fund job to start a business <laughs> and that was a passion project, something I wanted to do. But a couple of years ago, somebody wrote an article about it and their headline was something like hedge fund investor leaves job mm. to focus on kids or something like that. Right. It was something around the fact yeah, that I was like I becoming that. a parent yeah. and I had yeah. to write to them and be like, my husband's a stay at home dad. Like I do not want to miss label the fact that I'm like here with my kids 24 seven, because I'm home, but I'm in my office and my butt is in my chair. And like just that expectation that you can't quit and and do both is, is just a fallacy that we, and you have to convince yourself that what you're doing is real and what you're doing counts before you can be expected to convince anyone else of that. So a lot of what I do is help is help people with that too. Lauren, where can people follow up with you and Mm -hmm, figure out, find what you do? So my website is all spelled out the fifth trimester.com. And that is also my handle on Instagram. I am super lazy about Twitter and LinkedIn and, and Facebook. And so I just like sort of auto-populate all those things. But specifically, if you reach out to me on Instagram via direct message, I will, I will definitely respond. I do a lot of speaking and coming into businesses who need help with retention. And so that's, that's largely what I do. And I would be delighted to hear from anyone. And I, I also offer all kinds of free support and advice and resources on my Instagram as well. Um, so come find me. Awesome. Lauren, thank you so much for this, Mamas. Be sure to check out Lauren's book and we'll talk to you soon, Lauren. Thank you, Chelsea. 
Mamas, this was such a fantastic discussion with Lauren. That transition back to work is hard, and it's hard for a reason. As Lauren and I discussed, the majority of American moms are going back to work before we're ready. Six months of leave is the optimal amount, and most mamas get much less than that. It doesn't mean that this season is impossible, but it's good to know that you're not alone in it being hard and that we have to be kind to ourselves in this season. We can also lean on the strategies Lauren laid out, like radical visibility with your boss, asking for help from your partner and from family, and protecting your minimum four consecutive hours of sleep. And if you're currently expecting a new baby, think carefully about what you want your post-baby work life to look like. Does that mean stepping back for a little while? Does it mean leaning in and hiring more help in the first year so you can keep doing the work you want to do at work? You get to design what your post-baby work life will look like. If you want help laying out your financial plan and career plan for your new baby, make sure to check out our new mama money plan, which is linked in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash 116. I want to thank Lauren again for coming on the show. You can find links to her site and her book, The Fifth Trimester, in the show notes as well. Keep talking money, mama. I'll see you next time.